As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. Most of our culture, our parents, our schools, our coaches, our Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, our boys clubs, that's a, a side of us that is told to be generous, to be compassionate, to share. The idea of charity, of helping other people, these were all considered the best part of us. With Trump, that's the worst part of you. You're a sucker if you go for that stuff. It means you're putting somebody else before you and you should be number one. Presidents matter and culture matters. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Stuart Stevens is, I guess I can say, a former Republican political consultant. Stuart reached the highest levels of his profession, including chief strategist for Mitt Romney in the 2012 presidential campaign and the ownership of a very successful political consulting firm, before deciding that the party that supports Donald Trump could no longer be his party. He's written an upcoming book out fall of 2020 called It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. When you talk to Stuart, you get a sense of the anguish that some Republicans feel about what's happening to our country, despite very different perspective from progressives on many issues and policies. We had a very interesting conversation. I hope you will listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with former Republican media consultant and strategist, Stuart Stevens. The way political campaigns are engaging with voters is changing, and DS Political is here to help. Without live events and door-to-door canvassing, campaigns have to get creative. DS Political matches offline voter data to online profiles with match rates up to 90%, allowing you to target your voters with precision. We pioneered the best integration of data and technology to persuade audiences and deliver wins for progressive candidates and causes with efficient and effective programmatic digital advertising campaigns. Learn more at dspolitical.com forward slash battlefield. Hi, Stuart. Would you mind introducing yourself, giving me a quick biography? Sure. Stuart Stevens. I'm a writer and political consultant. I grew up in Mississippi, did my first campaign 1978 for Republican, ended up working for Republicans because when I was growing up in Mississippi, all the Democrats were kind of Eastland and Stennis and O-line segregationist. I have another part of my life where I write, write books. Uh, my eight is coming out this uh, year. And I write television shows. The uh, first I ever wrote was actually the first episode of Northern Exposure. Uh, and I write articles, mostly about uh, crazy sports stuff I like to do, um, Outside Magazine or New York Times Magazine, whatever, uh, mainly as an excuse to find somebody to pay for stuff I like to do. 
this spring, I left uh, the Republican firm that I started in early 1990s, co-founded, because I really found myself I couldn't work for Republicans running for federal office anyway. It's a lot of good Republican governors out there. And it wasn't fair to my firm, where a lot of people there I care about a lot, to, for me to be out there beating up on Trump and didn't want to penalize them. That's, uh, that's my story. And you, as a consultant, kind of reached the highest levels, right? I mean, working on yeah, you know, big the, Republican presidential races. Yeah, the, the, the secret to success in political consultant is to work for people who are going to win anyway. It's like being sort of a coach, you know, you want to work for the best team. I was very lucky to work for like really good candidates. We actually had the best win-loss record of anybody in our business. I look back on it and I was sort of shocked to see that I helped elect uh, Republican governors or senators in over half the country, worked on five presidential races, most recently the Romney campaign, 2012. We lost, if you haven't been following it. Worked for the Bush campaign in 2000 and 2004. I wrote a book about the Bush campaign in 2000 uh, called A Big Enchilada. And I think luck has a lot to do with it. So I use the word luck uh, very sincerely. I was lucky enough to work on a lot of winning races. Tell me about like the role you had with Romney in 2012 and how you saw that campaign. I started out as a media consultant, which means I made television commercials. And when I started in campaign world, there was uh, people who made television commercials like me. And then there was usually a general strategist involved. That's what uh, James Carville was, Paul Begala, Lee Atwater. Uh, Roger Stone was a general consultant. What happened to that is, uh, like a lot of businesses, um, the economics of drove to a different business model. And in making commercials, you were paid on an old advertising model that was, you're usually paid a retainer, and then you were paid a percentage of the dollars spent on television or any media, which is how advertising agencies charge. As campaigns spent more and more dollars on media, that became the most lucrative uh, source of income in a campaign. So a lot of people who used to call themselves general strategists decided to call themselves media strategists or media consultants. So the general strategist role sort of got out in campaigns. And what I found is I did this more and more and was lucky enough to win races more and more. I was involved increasingly in strategy. Uh, it was less about making commercials and more about being involved in the whole campaign in the Romney campaign in 2012, we had an advertising division uh, that was run by a woman named Ashley O'Connor, who now is the uh, managing partner of my old firm, uh, Strategic Partners Media. But my role, though I was involved in advertising, was more just general strategy, which means sort of touching different parts of the campaign, um, less involved in organization and direct voter contact than any other part of the campaign. Do you think that was a winnable campaign? Sure, of course, yeah. You mean you think the right strategy would have would have won it? Uh, sure, I'd have to say that. Uh, I think it was winnable, and as I've said to you know, since the day after we lost, you should blame me for losing. It, it's very difficult to beat an incumbent president. One of the realities that people don't realize, because you know they kind of have lives and they don't do this, the role of campaign finance reform in the absence of that has changed, in, in my experience, uh, presidential campaigns tremendously. So just to review, in 1976, post-Watergate, we passed uh, campaign finance reform. And one of the 
elements of that was the general elections for presidential campaigns were federally funded. That meant that every campaign got the same amount of money. Literally, when you walked off the stage accepting the nomination, there was someone there from the Treasury Department with a check. That check was around 80 to $84 million. It increased every four years. We were always like, can you wire this money? And they're, no, we do checks. They would be there with a check. Uh, and in agreement for taking that, you agreed that you would not raise or spend any other money. And a lot of intent. One was to clean up the corruption and fundraising that was evident in the Nixon campaign and other campaigns. Uh, but it also was to level the playing field. And it did level the playing field. Both candidates had the same amount of money for the general election. Um, it just stands to reason. So under that system, Carter lost and Bush lost. So you have to ask yourself, so in, in 2008, Barack Obama, when he announced, agreed like everyone did, that he would accept federal funding. Sometime in the spring of 2008, when they realized they could raise vast sums of money, mostly on the internet, though not exclusively, they decided to go back on that promise and not take federal funding. So he became the first candidate nominee since Nixon not to take federal funding. So he raised and spent right around $735 million. In the general election, he raised and spent right about $350 million. McCain stayed in the system and he spent like $83 million. So the history of campaign finance reform is that whenever one candidate gets out, it usually blows up the system and it's very difficult to go back. So 2012 was the first time an incumbent president had not been in the federal funding system since Nixon in 72. You ask yourself, when is the last time an incumbent president lost who wasn't in the federal funding system? And that was Herbert Hoover. And he had sort of a bad year. A lot has been said that money in campaigns doesn't mean as much, particularly in presidential campaigns. I think that's true, but it still means something. So just in the Romney campaign, you know, we emerged and that campaign broke, which most campaigns do. It was a campaign went on for a fairly long time. In June and July, the Obama campaign spent more on television than the Bush and Kerry campaign spent total throughout the whole campaign. Now, did that decide the campaign? Who knows? There's no universe that was a control in which the race was held or that didn't happen. But it also is not just the money spent, it's the amount of time you have to spend raising money. It's always easy for an incumbent president to raise money. No one says no to a president. I did a little back-of-the-envelope uh, calculation once. It was rough. But uh, once Romney got the nomination, we had to spend at least 40% of our time fundraising. So uh, it's a tremendous difference. Having done the Bush campaigns where he accepted campaign finance, and then this campaign where we were out there raising money in the general election, the difference is just huge, and it greatly favors the incumbent. If Hillary Clinton were president today, she'd be favored by that. Uh, it's not a Trump-specific or Obama-specific uh, designation. So that said, it's hard to beat an incumbent president. I, I think it was a winnable race. You know, it's fascinating. You look on election day, the favorable, unfavorable of both candidates was about 50% which is just such a shocking difference than where it was with Trump and Clinton. So, you know, it's interesting to look. Trump won with 46.1% of the vote, the total electorate. Romney lost with 47.2. So arguably Romney did 
at face value a better job of attracting a higher percentage of the electorate. I mean, that's a fact. He did. So why did Trump win with 46.1%? Well, two reasons. One was an increase in third-party voting. And two, it was the first time in 20 years that uh, non-white turnout declined. So if you take the 2012 turnout and you apply it to 2016, Clinton would have won easily. So Wisconsin's a good example. Romney lost Wisconsin by seven points. Trump won by just a little under one point. Well, the fact is Romney got more votes than Trump. Now, that's not true in all states that, that uh, Trump won that Romney lost. Trump got more votes than Romney did in Florida, for instance. But it just goes to show the impact of turnout. You know, I, I find all this stuff about you know, these hidden Trump voters and what he did, all this stuff, I find it just sort of ridiculous. First of all, he got 46.1% of the vote. So he got less percentage of the vote. Second, you look at Wisconsin, 50,000 fewer voters turned up in the greater Milwaukee area for a lot of reasons, but not a small percentage of that is the voter ID requirements that Wisconsin passed, which tends to impact lower income voters and minorities disproportionately. Um, that's not the only reason. I think it's logical to assume that African Americans were more excited about voting to reelect the first African American president than to vote for Hillary Clinton. It's reasonable. But it's certainly a factor. Could Romney have won? Sure. Was it a very tough race? Always from the beginning. And then there's the factor of Hurricane Sandy at the end, which you know, every race I've ever been involved in where we beat an incumbent, we always had to control the message at the end. It's sort of like an NBA game. You had to kind of have the ball at the end. This was the first time in American history you had a great natural disaster, you know, a week before a presidential election. And we went from having these giant sweeping rallies around the country to literally sitting in hotel rooms watching Barack Obama be a president. And I felt then just sitting in those rooms that any chance we had to win was lost. Would we have won without Sandy? It's a very difficult conversation to have because, again, there's no universe in which the race, there's no control. I think we certainly would have done better. I think we would have won Virginia. I don't think we would have won Colorado. Um, would we have won Florida? Hard to say. Probably not, but you don't know. It's not to say we wouldn't have done worse without Sandy because campaigns are campaigns. Mitt Romney could have gone out on Friday before the Tuesday election and said something really dumb or unfortunate when he was tired and could have been worse. But Barack Obama could have done the same. His numbers greatly increased in that period, Barack Obama's did. We were asking a question I always like to ask, though I'm not sure why I ask it, who do you think is going to win the race? And for Hurricane Sandy, the majority of people thought Mitt Romney was going to win, and that shifted 35 points over the next five days. Barack Obama was the overwhelming favorite to win. How does that influence people? There's influence there. You know, Nate Silver in his book, Signaling Noise, has an interesting little section on the influence of people wanting to vote for the candidate they think is going to win. But anyway, it was sort of a difficulty put on top of a difficulty. It's like, is it possible to throw a football through six swinging tires at 50 yards? Yeah, it's possible. Is it easier at 25 yards? Yeah, it's easier. It's easier at 10 yards, a lot easier. So it just increased the difficulty of the task at hand. You kind of led off by talking about how much 
luck does play a role and picking the right candidates. And if you talk to political scientists about sort of what they would call campaign effects, they're more dubious than political strategists are about how much impact sort of the campaign and the moves that you can make are versus sort of the big fundamental elements of, you know, how's the economy doing? Are we at war? I agree with the political scientist on that. A lot of people who had that distance from the campaign, who are analysts of it might say, you know, the odds were very high that the incumbent in 2012 was going to get reelected. And they might have similarly said in 2016 that, you know, it was going to be super close, absent some of these shocks to the system that happened at the last minute or or whatever. What was your lens on the 2016 campaign, having just been through it as a chief strategist and watching Trump? You know, a lot of people are wrong about 2016, but I think it's hard to find anybody who is more wrong than me. I thought that Trump was going to lose the primary, and I thought he's going to lose the general. Now, in retrospect, and a lot of this I analyzed in, in this book I wrote, it was all a lie. Some of this is why I wrote the book, to sort of make myself confront this. I didn't want to believe what Trump winning said about the Republican Party. And I didn't want to believe what Trump winning said about the country. I had great personal uh, bias to my political judgment. You know, I think you run that race a hundred times, Hillary Clinton wins 90. I would call it the side effect election. You know, if you pick up a bottle of Tylenol and you read the side effects, they sound pretty dire. But I don't know anybody that's ever taken Tylenol that stuff happened to. But it must happen to somebody they wouldn't put it on the bottle. So, you know, you flip enough coins, one will land on its edge. It is very difficult mathematically to lose a race by three million votes and lose the Electoral College, but Trump managed to do it. And a lot of granular analysis gone into the 84,000 supposedly votes here in these counties that made the difference. Without the Comey letter, I think Clinton would have won. We'll never know the degree to which the Russian influence helped. It certainly helped in they targeted, we now know, uh, trying to decrease African-American turnout. African-American turnout decreased a good bit. Was it a contributing factor? Probably. The Russians aren't stupid. Was it decisive? You never know. I mean, one of the problems you always have in politics is causality. And there tends to be sort of a, what I would call a volcano worshiping effect in politics. You have a drought, the volcano belches, it rains, you then next thing you know, you're worshiping volcanoes. So, you know, if you look at 08, Obama had this great organization and everybody said, that's why you won because, you know, he had this great organization and all this digital stuff. You look at Joe Biden, he had like not much of an organization and he won. So causality is always a great issue in any marketing, you know, as they famously, it's been said, you know, half of everything you spend on advertising is wasted. It's just a question of which half. That's even more true in something like campaigns. I thought Clinton would win. I think if he ran the race, like I said, 100 times, he would win 90. Trump has always benefited from the inability to imagine him winning. The entire dynamic in the primary campaign was all of these Republican candidates trying to get one-on-one against Trump. Because the Republican Party surely wasn't going to nominate some guy who was a failed casino guy who'd been married three times, had talked in public about having sex with his daughter, who, you know, seemed to think church was a place you go every few years to marry a model. That guy wasn't going to win the Republican nomination. 
So they all spent millions of dollars and months attacking each other just to get one-on-one with Trump until it was too late. I think uh, Trump benefited in the general election by people voting for him as a protest vote or not voting because they thought Trump was going to lose. So the necessity of voting was decreased. So that's a difficult thing to prove. I'm not sure you'd have to go out and poll massive amounts of people and ask where you're planning to vote. And people always lie about this stuff. Uh, but I think it's true. If you look at college-educated voters, you know, Republicans always win college-educated voters. Goldwater did. Trump was losing those right up until the Comey letter. And he was losing college-educated women by huge margins. And he ended up winning them by a couple of points. People didn't think he was going to win, and that helped him win. I don't think he obviously has that going for him now. And we'll see what difference that makes. What do you think his winning says about the Republican Party? You said you were uncomfortable with that. Yeah, listen, not a, <laughs> uncomfortable is a mild word. You know, it really goes back to the whole history of post-World War II Republican Party, which is a lot of what my book is about. You know, if you look at the 50s, there was an Eisenhower branch of the party, boring, sane, competent, a governing party. And then there was a McCarthy element. So now we look back at William Buckley and we hold them as sort of a great conservative intellectual, which he was, and we mourn the loss of William Buckley in our dialogue and how the Republican Party is now, you know, replaced Sean Hannity with William Buckley. But the truth is, when William Buckley started in the 50s, he was a stone-cold racist. He later recanted on this, much to his credit, and wrote a lot of eloquent stuff about why he was wrong. And the second book he wrote, after God and Man at Yale, was uh, a defense of uh, Joe McCarthy. So there's always that element in the party. A lot of us like to think that that was a recessive gene and that the element, say, represented by George Bush in 2000 was the dominant gene. And if you go back and you read, and I would encourage everybody to do this, George Bush's acceptance speech in 2000 at the Republican convention. It was written by Michael Gerson, who now is a columnist for The Post. It reads like an a, a artifact from a lost civilization. I mean, it's like stumbling across something from the Mayans. It's full of the call for compassion, humility, service. All of this has now become antithetical to what Trump stands for. If you had said back in the dark ages, say four years ago, what the Republican Party stood for, I think he would have come to pretty universal agreement that it stood for a few principles. What were those principles? Uh, character count. The culture of a country is the most important aspect of the country, more than any one issue. Personal responsibility. Strong on Russia. The deficit matters. Pro-legal immigration. Ronald Reagan announced in front of the Statue of Liberty. Signed a bill that made everybody in the country before 1983 legal. And it's not that the Republican Party today has sort of a forgotten those principles, which happens sometimes in parties. You drift away. Free trade. Free trade. Another example. Exactly. It's not that we've forgotten those things. We're actively against those things now, or the Republican Party is. I can't really say we anymore because I don't really consider myself a Republican anymore. You know, we're the anti-Republican or anti-personal responsibility party. So, you know, when Ronald Reagan was president, be born an American was the greatest gift in the world. You had won life's lottery. In Trump, to be born an American means you're a sucker. You're taken advantage of by these great, powerful forces in the world like Canada, such that we have to declare Canada a national security threat, which Trump actually did. It's like a Saturday Night Live sketch. 
Trump is the side of us. He speaks to the side of us that we all have, which is not our better angels, but I think our darker angels. And that's within all of us. I mean, we all have a side of us that most of our culture, our parents, our schools, our coaches, our Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, our Boys Club encourages. That's a a side of us that is told to be generous, to be compassionate, to share, to, you know, shares with others with the grades you got in your kindergarten, in your grade school, the idea of, of charity, of helping other people. These were all considered the best part of us. With Trump, that's the worst part of you. You're a sucker if you go for that stuff. It means you're putting somebody else before you and you should be number one. You know, that side of you that you feel when somebody cuts you off in traffic and you get that momentary little road rage, Trump tells you that's your best self. That you're a sucker if you let that guy cut you off. you got to do whatever it takes. Otherwise, you lost. And it's about winning or losing. Presidents matter. And culture matters. And if we had somebody who robbed banks who was president, it's not that bank robbing would become legal, but it probably become more socially acceptable. And Trump is that person. That's your best part. And same with racism. It's not that Trump has made people more racist. He's enabled racist. He's now made it okay to be a racist for the most part. And I think history shows when you have a major political party that basically empowers hate and legitimizes bigotry, it's very difficult to get it back in the bottle. And I think that's where we are with the Republican Party. So, you know, my feeling is no one really abandons deeply held beliefs in four years. It just means you didn't deeply hold them. So that's the only conclusion I come to. That those who have embraced Trump and supported Trump, you didn't really believe this stuff. Otherwise, you wouldn't support Trump. It's impossible to square the two. So they were just marketing slogans. It's like when Chevrolet used to have this old slogan, you know, Chevrolet's the heartbeat of America. Well, that didn't mean that you, like, took your car to a cardiologist when it, like, broke. It was just a slogan. So that's what, you know, personal responsibility was. That's what caring about the deficit was. These were just slogans. We'll say this, and if it doesn't work, we'll say something else. And, you know, the irony of that is it's conservatives ranted for decades against situational ethics, transactional ethics. And that's what Trump represents more than anything else, transactional ethics. So you titled this book that is now going to come out in the fall, It Was All a Lie. What what was all a lie? Well, everything that we said that we stood for, wasn't it? I mean, uh, just what I recounted. When I talked to Republicans or Generally, I talk to Republicans who don't like Trump, but when I ask them, why has your party kind of fallen in line? They say, well, he's not different terribly than a regular Republican. He's appointing, you know, Federalist Society judges. He's reducing regulation. You know the list. There are some things that he's doing that are making Republicans happy. I'll tell you what I say to that. You know, when George Wallace was governor, he did a lot of good things, actually. He passed free textbooks, for instance. But nobody's remembered as the free textbook George Wallace guy. You're the George Wallace guy. And I think that's how it is with Trump. I think it's an illusion to think you have a president of the United States who's out attacking the very 
foundations of the American judicial system. He's attacking jurors. He's attacking judges. He called a judge from Indiana a Mexican. You're insane to think that that is less important than appointing maybe a judge that you like. What Trump is doing is much more an assault on the foundations of the judicial system in America. And that's what's going to be remembered. I mean, this generation of conservatives that are coming up now that thinks this is what you're supposed to do because this is what Trump is doing, this is what they're going to do. And it's more toxic. So does anybody really think the attitude that Trump had toward this uh, COVID-19 that is going to result in tens of thousands of deaths, that this is going to be remembered as the era that we cut marginal tax rates for corporations and not the era that tens of thousands of Americans died unnecessarily? I don't think so. I really don't. It's sort of just something that Republicans tell themselves to feel better because you have to rationalize supporting Trump. It's very difficult to support a president without that rationalization that acts every day in a way you wouldn't want your child to act or your colleague or your boss to act. I think that's a lie. I think we're lying to ourselves. It feels to me like the political class is doing that kind of calculation, is rationalizing. But there's also a lot of people who are, you know, bedrock to the party who are celebrating and aligned and enthusiastic and going to rallies and and really believing in this guy. I think they'll look back on this and regret it, a lot of them. But this is really what it says about them, not what it says about the Republican Party. That it, It's like, I think Trump is a racist. So to vote for Trump, do you have to be a racist? No, of course not. And millions and millions and millions of people voted for Trump who aren't racist. Does it mean that you have to be willing to accept that something is more important than not having a racist as president? Yes. That's what it means. You're bargaining with yourself. It's, it's a classic Faustian bargain. And what people forget is Mesistopheles not only takes your soul, he never delivers what he said he was going to deliver. I hear Republicans say, I just wish he wouldn't tweet so much. Yeah, it's not about the tweets. I mean, that's the most absurd thing. Tweets is just when you see, he's revealing who he is. It's who he is that matters. You know, it's sort of like, I just wish we hadn't found the body. It's not the body. It's the murdering. Listen, I, I think it just shows, what, what do you just, I mean, this is, the, read William Bennett's book about Clinton, about, you know, the book of virtue. All the stuff we said, it was just all, and so now you accept Trump. So, what has changed? Nothing's changed. That's, that's why I call it, it was all a lie. It just means that we were pretending to believe in this stuff. I mean, look, I don't like to admit this because, you know, I'm not one of these guys that says, like, blame other people. The first sentence in my book is blame me. I mean, I wrote a piece of the Washington Post, or, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago that started out blame me. I was part of this, more than most people. I mean, I helped elect more of these people than, than just about anybody. Let me tell you, it's a pretty awful feeling to look back on it and realize you helped elect these people who have enabled Trump and who didn't fight for what the party was said it stood for. 
So take the moment when Trump came out for a Muslim ban, right? That was in December of 2015. What the Republican Party should have done, what rights people should have done, is gone out and did what we did when Todd Akin, when he was a Missouri Republican nominee for Senate, said this awful stuff about women and rape. The Republican Party, rights people went forward and said, we're not going to support him. Now, did it mean that it cost him the seat? Yes, but it meant there was something more important here. That's what we should have done when Trump said that he was for a Muslim ban. We should, Ryan should have gone out there. Other Republican leaders should have gone out there and said, look, we can't stop Trump from running as Republican. We can't stop people from voting for him. But we're not going to support this as a Republican Party. It's unconstitutional. It's hateful. It's not who we are. Now, maybe Trump would have won. I mean, if Ryan's Priebus had done that and Trump won and Ryan had resigned and said, people have spoken, but it's not who I am, Ryan's Priebus would be a hero today in America. You know, instead of somebody who's sitting in the audience cheering for Sean Spicer and dancing with stars. Why do you think he didn't? Why do you think? Because they didn't think Trump was going to win. I can guarantee you. You think that's why? Yes. Yeah. Not because of principle? No. No. No one, none of us go through life, at least most of us don't. I certainly don't, looking for moral dilemmas. We spend most of our time trying to avoid them and not recognize this is a moral dilemma. Everybody thought Trump was going to lose, so it didn't matter. There's an element that supported Trump. Why go alienate this element? It'll go away. So even after Trump got the nomination, I went to a lot of Republican leaders and urged them two things. I tried to get candidates to run in states as favored son candidates to take votes away from Trump. And if you look at it, you know, if you had a candidate run in Florida and he took 5% of the Republican vote, it would mean Trump wouldn't win Florida. Same for Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, even South Carolina. So I went to people. Now, I went to them under the, you know, be off the record. I'm not going to reveal who I went to, but I went to prominent Republicans who would have gotten 5% of the vote in those states and tried to get them to run. They all hated Trump. They all thought Trump was a disaster for the Republican Party. But what they told me was, they said, look, Stuart, if we, the establishment, put our thumb on the scale, when Trump loses, we're going to get blamed. It's not going to be because you know, Trump has terrible ideas, he's a racist, it's alt-right stuff, Breitbart. It's going to be because we interfered. We've got to just let him lose, let this wash out, and we've got to rebuild. And I would say, well, yeah, but what if he wins? And I said, well, he's not going to win. And I didn't think he was going to win either, so I probably wasn't very good at arguing the other. So, you know, if Julian Assange ever hacks my emails, he's going to find that, you know, in 16, I went out publicly for the first time, and I'd never been a guy who went on television a lot. I didn't think that was my role. But I did in 16, you know, trying to rally people and articulate and just kind of about a moral outrage about Trump. And I'd say, I don't know, a third of the Republican Party, that might be an exaggeration, but not far from it, email me, thanking me, encouraging me, People saying, I wish I could say this, but I'm an elected official, I can't, or I'm a party chairman, I can't, and this and that. All of that right up to about 10 o'clock on election night. And then it just stopped. And then I started getting emails like, uh, dude, could you like erase that email? My feeling is pretty simple. I feel about Trump the same way I felt at 8 o'clock as I did at midnight. It's an absolute tragedy, I think, for the party. It's always difficult when you're in the middle of something to realize what's happening, right? I think what's happened with the Republican Party is really unlike what's happened to any party in certainly modern political history, American history, and maybe in American history. You've had a total moral collapse of the party. Everything the party said it stood for, except maybe abortion, although the party didn't used to say it stood for anti-abortion, but it's evolved to that. The party doesn't stand for now. So 
Have we ever seen anything like this? I don't think so. The only closest analogy I can find is in the Communist Party, which just ultimately collapsed because everything it said that it believed in just became so apparent it didn't. It was just about the acquisition of power. And I think that's what the Republican Party's become. It's just about the acquisition of power for power's sake. I mean, what else is it? Is it for the deficit? Is it for personal responsibility? Is it for free trade? Is it for strong on Russia? Is it for standing up to dictators? No, it's just power. So that's how cartels operate. You know, nobody says, like, what's the moral purpose of OPEC? OPEC is to sell oil. What's the philosophical underpinnings of a narco cartel? They just want to sell dope. And that's all the Republican Party wants to do. It just wants to elect Republicans. That's it. I mean, you must have friends that are staffing the administration. Sure. That are U.S. senators voting on impeachment. A lot. How are you advising them now? Nobody calls me for advice. What are you kidding? Have you been kind of read out of the party because of that? Yeah, of course. I read myself out. You know, the old Groucho Marx thing, I don't want to be part of a club that Donald Trump is a member. Yeah, of course. I mean, I don't call these people up and badger them. I mean, what purpose is that? They know it. There was talk that if the impeachment vote was secret, Trump would have lost it in the Senate. Do you think there's something to that? Maybe. I don't know. If you ask me, would the majority of senators prefer to have Mike Pence's, Republican senators, have Mike Pence's president overwhelmingly? But would they have voted that way? I don't know. Look, I mean, one of the things that drives me, so offends me about these Republicans for the most part in power now is they're the heir to the greatest generation, right? So take my dad, right? So my dad, you know, was in the FBI and then he joined the Navy in World War II. He spent three years fighting in the South Pacific, 28 island landings, right? So his story was just typical. And now that, that legacy of millions of Americans who sacrificed has been handed to this current, and they've just squandered it. I mean, courage isn't voting against some ridiculous fat guy from Fifth Avenue, Donald Trump. Courage is getting out of the boat when the guy in front of you just got shot. And they don't have the guts to just stand up to Donald Trump. And it's a disgrace. I mean, if these Republicans were in power in 1776, we'd still be celebrating the Queen's birthday. I mean, you know it. What would they say? They say, what are we going to do, stand up to the king, the most powerful army in the world? Are you crazy? We just got to work this thing out. And they would all talk, like all these Republicans talk about what would be worse if I wasn't there. I mean, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I'm going to start telling people, you know, I stopped an alien invasion yesterday. How do you know? We didn't get invaded, did we? Didn't happen. It's just weakness. How do you think Romney's done in this? I think Romney has been... True to Romney. He's done what he said he was going to do. He's agreed with the president when he agreed with him, and he's disagreed when he didn't agree with him. And I think if every Republican had acted like Mitt Romney, the Republican Party would still be a viable moral governing force. If you were pulled in by, say, the Biden campaign to Mm -hmm. advise them and how to beat Trump this fall, what advice would you give? Well, first of all, I mean, I think the Biden campaign has proven to be... I think they've done a tremendous job. You know, one of the hardest thing in politics is you start a race, particularly people think you might win that race, and you 
you lose at first, as Biden did. This tremendous hydraulic pressure to try to reinvent your guy or your woman, your candidate. Make them somebody they're not. Because the person that this candidate is, is losing. It's understandable. Well, the Biden campaign, to their everlasting credit, and Biden himself, of course, resisted that. They didn't. They made the decision they were going to win or lose with Joe Biden is who Joe Biden wants. That's really, really hard to do. I've been in those rooms, man. It is hard to do. It is being in the third quarter of the Super Bowl and you're behind 20 points and you stick with your game plan. That's hard. You've got to have a lot of confidence in yourself and in your candidate. And they did. And by damn, you know, they're going to win this thing. I think they're doing things exactly right. You know, I'll support Joe Biden wholeheartedly. I'd be glad to work for Joe Biden. But I would have voted for Bernie Sanders. Because I think that the only way that we're going to get back to some sort of legitimate center-right party is in opposition to something as left as Bernie Sanders. That might sort of bring the party back to its senses. And I don't think Bernie Sanders is a threat to the country. I think Donald Trump is a threat to the country. I mean, people are dying because of Donald Trump now. I think Biden's doing a great job. Now, it's very hard to beat an incumbent president. Parties have this crazy way of inventing people when they need them. Countries have that. I mean, Churchill was a failure until he wasn't. Thatcher was just sort of not particularly noted until she wasn't. That might be happening with Joe Biden. It might be that, you know, he wasn't a very good presidential candidate before. He lost uh, races. But, you know, so did Ronald Reagan. Lost two races. The big question in any race is what is the race about? So take 1992, right? George Bush, if the race had been about who was the most experienced in foreign policy, who was the most experienced in governing, who could continue to keep America on a steady course, George Bush would have won that race overwhelmingly. But once the race became about change, that's the one race George Bush couldn't win. And the one race Bill Clinton, this guy from Arkansas who never held office in Washington, couldn't lose. So what is the race going to be about in November? We don't know. But if it's about Donald Trump, I think Donald Trump loses. And this is why they were so desperate to run against Bernie Sanders. They wanted to make this about socialism, which is absurd, but anyway. It's easier to make a race about socialism if the nominee is a democratic socialist. That's, and with Biden, I think that Biden's kind of blandness could be a great benefit now and his inherent decency. So if this is a race that is a referendum on decency and competence, Biden should win easily. And he's is a great candidate to do that. Obviously, the Trump campaign will muddy him as they've already started having schemes to do and they'll cheat to do it. Well, pause on that for a second, you know. All that energy they spent attacking Hunter Biden, right? What if they had spent that energy attacking COVID-19? They'd be a lot better off now. I've always thought the Hunter Biden attacks were ridiculous when you have these odious children of Donald Trump running around the world making money hand and fist. It was at face value. It was absurd. But I think had they had that, there's not anybody in the Trump campaign. If they had that to do over, they would have focused on COVID-19 instead of Hunter Biden. You obviously would never do this. But if you were advising Trump on how to win, what would you tell him? I don't know. 
it sounds like you would say govern well. Well, you ought to do that anyway. You know, there's that old question, are you better off now than four years ago? I think that's going to be difficult to answer positively in November. It's really not complicated. You know, Trump is a white grievance candidate. So why did he win? He won because non-white turnout declined. The bottom line to Trump is it's about getting white people to vote for him. And that's what this is going to be all about. And everything they do to kind of reach out to African-Americans, supposedly, is really about trying to get moderate white people to vote for them. It's not about trying to get African-Americans to vote for them. They're not that stupid. They know it won't work. And it's just, you know, he's, he's a white candidate, more so openly than really anybody in our lifetime. So that's their strategy. Do you think that means that strategically Biden should be more white by picking a white woman as his vice president? I would be hesitant to give advice to the campaign that has just pulled off one of the more remarkable comebacks in political history. That would be a little arrogant. I, you know, I would be asking them for advice. I mean, I know these people around Biden, a lot of them, and they're like really, really smart people, experienced, tough. They know what they're doing and they've proven it. Who are you thinking of? Well, I mean, you take Ron Klain, you take a woman who is, is uh, handling her debate prep, who I worked on the debate commission with. Is that done? Uh, yeah, Anita Dunn. She's super smart. And uh, her husband is someone who's an attorney who works on this. And I was on the debate commission with them. We were trying to come up with an alternative strategy for debates or structure for debates that was done to the Annenberg uh, Foundation. I mean, these are like real smart people. Uh, I think they're doing great. Joe Slade White, they're, they're, maybe. They're great ads. Joe Slade is very smart. I think it's all about, the whole race is about non-white turnout. So I wouldn't waste any time trying to get Trump voters. Because if all the Trump voters turned out, he's going to lose. He's got to get new voters. I'd try to block him from getting new voters. But I wouldn't worry about getting anybody voted for Trump. You don't need those people. First of all, a lot of those people have died. I mean, his best group are older voters, and a lot of these voters have died. And they're not being replaced by younger voters. So at face value, he has probably fewer voters today than he did on Election Day. Repeat customers. What is going to motivate non-white turnout? Well, as somebody who worked for Republicans and we failed miserably at this, I think it would be a little presumptuous for me to start advising them. Hey, guys, you know, we never got more than 9 or 10% of the black vote, but let me tell you how to get the black vote. I don't really think that's my place. Um, but I think they know. Does that mean that you appoint, you know, a vice president who's African-American? Perhaps. I don't know. At face value, I would say a Biden-Kamala Harris ticket should be, you know, ferocious. But they know better than I. And I actually think Biden is going to make a choice based a lot on who he's going to work with. I think Biden is going to assume he's going to win. And he's going to pick someone who he wants to work with who thinks would help him govern. That's certainly what Mitt Romney did. And it's why I stayed out of advising Mitt pretty much on vice presidential candidate. It's such a personal it's thing. It's a personal choice, yeah. You know, once I, when, in 2000, when we used to go out to Crawford, Texas and do debate prep, 
in the summer when Bush was picking a vice president, he and I, Mark McKinnon, we were, Bush loved to go running in the middle of the day when it was the hottest. We were out jogging and I asked him, I said, so uh, governor would it be appropriate if I uh, talked to you about vice presidential choice. And he like turned at me, like covered in sweat and said, hell no. Well, you know, why the hell should I care what you think? <laughs> McKinnon like fell down laughing. And later, <laughs> Bush said something to us. He says, look, Stuart, let me give you some advice, man. When a guy's getting married, wait until he asks you what you think of the girl till you tell him. But, oh, God. Like, good <laughs> advice. That's smart. <laughs> um, so, you know, he made the choice based on who he thought would help him govern. <laughs> he didn't bring a lot of votes. And I think Biden will do the same. Be interesting to see. What, what do you worry most about for our country with Trump in charge? Oh, uh, just what it's doing to our, our, our political culture. I mean, I, I, it breaks my heart to see these young conservatives thinking they need to be like Trump. So there's this attitude out there. That one of the things, another thing Republicans say to sort of justify Trump is, look at how unfairly Romney was treated, how unfairly Bush was treated by the press. Therefore, Trump has to attack the press and all of this. Well, I think that's nonsense. George Bush's father was attacked by the press greatly unfairly. George Bush didn't do that. And he won. He actually won the popular vote in 2004. Only how it's happened since his father ran in 88. So I think that's just an excuse. You never let the other person decide what you're going to do, what your own standards are. Otherwise, you've absolved your control to somebody else. So it kills me that, that people look at Trump. He ran this vicious campaign of hate. And won. So therefore, they decide this is the kind of campaign you have to win. I don't think so. To me, it's like somebody going to a cocktail party, you have a few drinks, you drive home safely, and you decide alcohol helps you drive better. I don't think that's the right conclusion. And you don't see many people getting elected in governor's races and Senate races that are out there being like Trump. I mean, Roy Moore didn't win. Though God knows, you know, and Roy Moore is sort of like a Saturday Night like skits. What would it take to get white Republicans to vote for a decent, moderate Democrat? Well, what if the Republican was a child molester? No, not enough. 67% of white Alabamians supported for the guy who's the alleged child molester. That's what worries me the most. Do people think that this is what politics is supposed to be? It's supposed to be about hate. It's supposed to be about anger. It's supposed to be about attacking the press like this. It's supposed to be about nothing but winning. No principles. That there's this thing now in the Republican Party that whenever they try to justify Trump, they say, well, you think, you know, this is what Obama did. Look, Obama launched a lot of unfair attacks against Romney. I mean, they basically accused Romney of killing somebody. I don't think that's a reason you go out and do the same. I think that's a reason you don't do that. And I thought the whole idea of politics was to be better than the other side, not to use the other side being worse so you could be even worse. And I think that's what's being taught. You know, it's sort of like white supremacy. It sort of proves that whites aren't supreme. But I, I think it's, it's self-defeating. It's deeply depressing to see. And it's deeply depressing to see people who I know think Trump is not qualified to be president, pretending that he is qualified. It's incredibly depressing. I mean, it breaks my heart. It's like watching a friend drink themselves to death. 
I've talked recently to a, a woman who ran Joe Walsh's campaign in the primary against Trump, Lucy Caldwell. Yeah, Lucy Caldwell. Yeah, I don't know Lucy, but she seems, yeah. she seems great. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I like talking to her. And she said, this party has to be burnt to the ground. I agree. It's too corrupted to go on. It, something has to be formed in its place. Well, I don't think that'll happen. I don't think there'll be a third party that'll be successful. Um, Sometimes there's a third party that replaces the Republicans replaced. I just don't think it'll happen. You know, the, I don't think it'll happen. Yeah, it's hard. Um, yeah. I, I think the more likely scenario is I think we're going to be in for a period of pretty left government. Now, will that start in 2020 or will it start in 24? I don't know. It's kind of like the subprime mortgage crisis. It's easier to say what's going to happen than when it'll happen. But the fundamental moral underpinnings of the Republican Party do not exist. And I don't think a major party can exist for very long like that. You know, it's like a pro football team. Can you win without a defense? Yeah, but like eventually you're going to lose bad. It's going to be more difficult because, you know, Trump isn't going to go away, win or lose. And Trump has replaced, he's taking control of all these state parties. I mean, even in states like Massachusetts, Vermont, Maryland, where you have these wildly popular Republican governors, you know, they don't control the parties. Trump has taken over the parties. And these people aren't going to go away. And, you know, he's got these odious children who are going to be out there. And Trump, if he loses, is just going to be out there. And he's not going to be like Bush or Obama or any other decent president. No, he's going to be throwing wrenches. Yeah, and I think it's just going to continue. And trying to elect his kids the next time. Yeah. And... I think that's going to doom the Republican Party. Uh, it'll sh continue to shrink. It's demographics. It's not just African Americans. It's not just Hispanics. You look at Asian Americans. They used to like the Republican Party. Now they hate it. And it's not like we were out attacking Asians, not until recently. <laughs> now Trump's out there attacking them. But they just got the joke that if you weren't white, you weren't welcome. If you look at the Republican Party as a patient... One of the things I would look at that shows like a super high white blood count that shows something's wrong is their attitude toward education. So we've now gone to a point where Republicans sort of become a thing among conservatives. That higher education is basically this place where youth gets indoctrinated into the left. So, I mean, pretty much any time that happens, what follows is destructive be it the Khmer Rouge, be it the Red Guard, be it the Republican Party. And when you have people who are as highly educated as any people in the world, like Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley, I mean, Josh Hawley from Missouri, senator, elected. Here's a guy who went to Stanford. He taught at St. George's in London, founded in 1540. He went to Yale Law School. He wrote a book, a really good book, actually. It was a biography of, of Teddy Roosevelt that he published when he was 28 by Yale Press. He's out there railing against the elites. I mean, really? Really? Like right now, it's going to be the elites that save us. It's the best educated. And odds are that whenever we come up with a, a vaccine for this virus, there's going to be an immigrant who is deeply involved in it. It's an early warning sign of when the acquisition of knowledge becomes a threat in the world. That usually, I think, is a sign that terrible things are going to happen to the people that are advocating that. It's unsustainable because education is the future. I totally agree with you. I would love to talk to you for hours. I, 
I think I should let you return to, okay. to your life. I'm depressing. Um, I'm depressing to talk to. I appreciate it. So, uh, no, it's, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm on, on a similar page with you. Unfortunately, is there a question that I haven't asked that you wish I had? You know, it's very odd for me. I was always the optimist in politics. I was always the guy that always thought we could win. You know, I was the guy you'd be behind twenty to nothing, and it being you know a week out in the campaign. I always thought we could win. I was not always right. It was sort of a standard joke. I was the guy that always thought they could win and they never would accept defeat. And now I've become this tremendous pessimist. It's a very uncomfortable position. I mean, I have this idea that if we're going to return to personal responsibility, it should begin with personal responsibility. And so you're taking your responsibility for putting us in this fix. God damn it. Yeah. I mean, I can't lie anymore. I can't pretend that what I'm saying isn't a lie. What I was saying isn't a lie. It's proven to be a lie. I mean, Republican Party's sort of selling, you know, losing five dollars in every sale and hoping to make it up in volume. And it's just unsustainable. So I just kind of can't pretend that it's going to work because maybe we could, you know, get one more election out. I'm someone who's sort of studied U.S. politics since I was little in one way or another, whether through books or academically or as a you know practitioner a bit and it's just so painful to watch this country in such a fix you know in such a fix like hungary or poland or turkey well i'd say we're, we're in a worse fix because you know if you just take this virus a higher percentage of americans are going to die just from the point of view of the democracy and how healthy it is there was nobody who was present before who you worried that he would not hold the election in the fall. Yeah. With this guy, you worry. Yeah. Well, Trump wouldn't in a heartbeat if, if he could get away with it. Absolutely. He, he will try anything and see if he can get away and with Republicans it. Republicans will go along with it. I've given up thinking that there was some line that Trump could cross to Republicans because of moral reasons. The only thing that would change Republicans is fear. And the only thing that they, they fear is losing. They don't care. About then they'll leave him. They don't care about them. Then they'll leave him. They don't care about the country. Yep. He needs to be beaten badly for that reason. They need to be They need to be beaten badly, and they need to be beaten badly for quite some time. I mean, this whole illusion, like I hear people, you know, at 16, they said, oh, I'm going to vote for Pence, not Trump. And I'm like, really? You think that gets you off the hook? That's like getting on a plane and saying, you know, I'm for where the first 10 rows are going, but not where the next 20 are going. I think the plane's going the same place, dude. And you chose to get on it. So own that. It's on you. There's a subset, a small set of sort of never Trump Republicans that are out. Do you think we'll see a bunch of moves by Republicans that are not out in the fall to try to throw this? Well, most people, I mean, this whole never Trump thing. I mean, never, nobody ever called me and asked me if I wanted to join a club. I really don't even know what this never Trump thing is. I, I know how I feel about Trump. But there's sort of a list of people that meet together and, I guess. and I don't know. go I don't, on, go on TV. I don't, ever go to, I don't ever go to these meetings, but um, I'm not really, a, they would probably count. I'm you. not really a joiner, but I have my feelings about it. Watch college educated Republicans and watch women. The last to join are usually the first to leave. So they were the last to join Trump. They, in uh, 18, tended to vote Democratic in unusual numbers. If it's the day before the election and Trump is losing Republican women, he's going to lose the election. They're the ones who 
are going to, to tell the, the tale here. So do I think that enough of them will be disgusted with Trump and disgusted with what he's done to the country to accept Biden? Yes. I think it would have been much more difficult for Bernie Sanders. But I think Joe Biden is unthreatening, which I think is a, is a positive. Ultimately, you know, there's been movements of hate in the country before, lots of them. I mean, Father Coughlin. But they never were nominated to lead a party. So why? So why, when a lot of countries turned fascist in the 30s, America didn't? There's probably some reason for that. And part of it is leadership. I mean, had Roosevelt been a fascist, if we'd voted for a fascist, we probably would have stayed out and we would have supported We would have become America first Lindbergh. Uh, Joe Kennedy. Hate is exhausting. And Trump is exhausting. Because to a large degree, he's a candidate of hate. At a certain point, you think people would like to not feel the way Trump makes them feel. And I think that is a hope that he'll lose in the fall. I don't think America has become a hotbed of bigotry and bitterness. Trump is bigoted and bitter. So I hope it'll be enough to defeat Trump. There's a lot of people in the Republican Party who think we're just going to forget Trump. I don't think they should be allowed to forget Trump. They should be held accountable. This is a defining moment in their life. Supporting Trump or not supporting Trump. They chose to support Trump. They don't want it to be that. They want it to be just something they had to do. But it's not. And it's not going to be remembered that way. All of these people are going to remember. McConnell thinks that Trump is going to be remembered as his fool. I don't think so. I think it's more likely McConnell's going to be remembered as Trump's fool. That's how it's always worked in the past. I think there'll be better days, but I think the Republican Party has got to completely rebuild. And it's not going to happen from people leading the party now. I hope to see it sooner rather than later. Really, the country needs that. Yep. Well, thank you so much for your time. Anything else you want to say? Nope, that's good. All right, man. All the best. That was Stuart Stevens. His upcoming book is called It Was All a Lie. You can pre-order it now. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.